and stand up for righteousness. Don't be petty in the other issues. Make sure we get the main ones down. We stand for life. We stand for marriage. We stand for the things of the Bible. I'm really excited and, and, and happy to have Pastor Floyd come and deliver the word this morning as we continue our journey in, in growing in community. Pastor Floyd. I don't know where to start or how far to go, to tell you the truth, because uh, I guess I'll tell you that if you've got other things doing, feel free to get up and go. Uh, I feel like God has put some things on my heart. Uh, I've prayed over them. I've sweated over them. And I don't know that I can do it in 10 minutes. Uh, so if you'll bear with me, uh, we are going to talk about the... Uh, life group, and the commitment to community. Uh, how many of you are in a life group? Could I? How many of you are there every week? Hey, that's great. Uh, that, is a, that is a very good means of accomplishing an extremely important biblical mandate. And that mandate is that as a community of believers, in the cosmic sense, we are the only tool that stands against what the enemy is seeking to do to God's people. Now, you say, you know, can community be all that important? Uh, and I hope to make the case and uh, that uh, it will stir our hearts to see uh, what we need to see. And I'm going to start by turning to Psalm 133. Uh, Rob was there last week. So I'm going to jump off there as well. And uh, we're going to talk about some things that I consider uh, uh, extremely important. I know it comes right after 132. There it is, 143. All right. One of my favorite psalms, and uh, I'm going to read it slow and invite you to just let it in. Okay? He says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. We could stop there. And uh, how many of you would say amen? How many of you had that experience of the sweetness of Christian fellowship that you would, you would drive 10 miles to be with those people or that person? Uh, many of us have that as an intention, and yet because of how we structure our lives, frequently we don't have time. And I think in a, in a large measure, if we don't have time, it's because we don't have priority for it. We don't have the value for it. Let me go on here just a little bit, and uh, I'm going to finish this psalm. It says, It is like the precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. Yuck. <laughs> Uh, this, is a, this is an allusion to something that I think would be worth uh, our time to take just a quick look at it. And uh, 
we find in uh, Exodus chapter 30, verse 25, the uh, formula for this special perfume. Exodus 30, verse 25. And it, uh, we'll start at 22. That's where in my Bible it says, anointing oil. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is, 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant cane, 500 shekels of cassia, and uh, according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hin of olive oil. Now, I'm not just sure what a hin is. Uh, these measurements are not something we're really familiar with. But let me tell you, this was a batch. This was a lot. Uh, make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer, it will be sacred, the sacred anointing oil. Then use it to anoint the tent of meeting, the Ark of the Testament, uh, the table and all its uh, articles, the lampstand and its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the basin with its stand. You shall consecrate them so that they will be most holy. Don't want to get too excited here. It will be most holy. Anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Do not pour it on men's bodies. Do not make any oil with the same formula. It is sacred and you are to consider it sacred Whoever makes the perfume like it and whoever puts it on anyone other than a priest must be cut off from the people. See, this is what uh, the psalmist had in mind. Uh, I was going to do something this morning but thought it would take too much time. And I was going to ask uh, five ladies who would be here and, and their husbands would be here to make a sample of their favorite perfume. And then invite the husbands to come up and see if they can determine which ones belong to their wife. Uh, Darlene's favorite perfume is called Charlie. I thought it would be Floyd, but it's Charlie. Uh, Chanel number, anybody for Chanel number five? Like I said, maybe too old. There's one back there. Whatever that odor is, if that's something that pleases you, and it kind of is a mark of identification. When people come around, if it isn't too strong and if they're not allergic, uh, they will know uh, that's Charlie. I mean, Darlene. <laughs> what is God's fragrance? Uh, Would we recognize the fragrance of God? Does he have a fragrance? That's what the psalmist is saying here. Uh, concerning the unity and the community of the saints, he says it's like the sacred anointing oil that is poured on the person who is, who is appointed or is uh, established as the priest. It would flow down on the, over the head, on the beard, off the clothes, clear down onto the bottom of the robe. And whenever you smell that smell, that was the smell of God. Let me tell you something. Your relationship with other people is that smell. Or it is a smell of something far less. If there is community going on, if there is unity and love and mutuality, support and care going on, you have no secrets, you trust each other, you know, a lot of people would say, I don't have one person that I could be in that kind of community with. I don't want them to know my struggles. I don't want them to know the thoughts that I have uh, concerning uh, other people and maybe their idiosyncrasies or their abuse. 
And so we live our lives in isolation. We live away from uh, the examination of the aroma that's coming from us. And uh, as we think about the community of God's people, we need to remember that it is in community that the, that the presence and the power of, of God is made, is made manifest. Uh, people are not particularly impressed with your theology. People are not particularly impressed with your, your rituals or your traditions in the congregation. What they are impressed with is the presence of Christ in your life that is unmistakable. And dear friends, if you don't have, or you're not a part of those community, or you pull away, you are, you are denying Christ the opportunity to manifest His life through you. Now, I'm going to go back to Psalm 133, if I can find it. I know it's right after, it's just before Proverbs. There we go. So it's like the precious anointing oil running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robe. I suppose he had to take a bath after this. I, I don't know. Uh, it is as if the dew of Hermon. Anybody here named Hermon? Okay, I see that hand. That's Hermonetta. Okay, it is as the dew of Hermon where we're falling on the Mount Zion, for there the blessings of the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. Now, Mount Hermon was in the north of Israel, in the anti-Lebanon range. And it was Mount Hermon when the snows would fall would provide that year-round flow of water into the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. Apart from this, it would be a barren, unproductive desert. And he says, this is what the community of God's people is. That it, it is that thing which, which flows down and nurtures life all around it. Uh, some of us struggle with the idea of, of, of witnessing. I remember one person who said, every Christian should witness and, if necessary, use words. I'll say it again. Every believer should witness and, if necessary, use words. What this implies is that there is a life-giving power that flows from, from our lives, that nurtures the, the field and the and the, and the area around us. I believe God's vision for the church is this kind of a community. And the pastor is not the only one who witnesses. God's plan is that every believer would be scattered to the corners of the, of the community and there emit the fragrance. There emit that life-giving uh, water that, that nurtures the people around them. Uh, it, it isn't the four spiritual laws. That's a good definition. It's kind of a capsulized version of what happens when we, when we understand and open our hearts to Jesus Christ as our Savior. But dear friends, apart from the aroma, apart from the flow of that water, the four spiritual Laws is just more distilled theology. And it isn't going to have that effect of moving and, and uh, transforming people's hearts. I'm taking a lot of shortcuts here this morning, but I, I want to take this out of the ought to. You know, here's one more thing the preacher says you ought to. We have to. You ought to. It's, it's, it's just there in our vocabulary. But I want to put this in a cosmic sense that it would grip your heart and it would not be something that you're feeling pressure to perform, but that which by the power of the Spirit would be the expression of your life. How many have heard of the Big Bang Theory? How many of you know what the Big Bang Theory is? What is it? 
Okay, so there was something there, and there was a moment in time when there's this gigantic explosion. And from that point on, everything is flying outward. Not coalescing, it is flying outward, which uh, gives us some clues as to what is really going on. Uh, This would, be, this would be a part of what is called the law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics is the law of entropy. The law of entropy means that everything is moving from a higher state to a lower state. If you burn the log, you have ashes and smoke. It's less available. It's less valuable. And everything in the universe, uh, on the basis of this, uh, observed uh, thesis about how reality works. Everything in the, in the universe is moving from a higher to a lower state. Ask me if I'm as strong as I was and as vital as I was when I was 35. I mean, that was only five years ago, but... <laughs> But this is important for us. And by the way, if you want to have an answer uh, uh, for the uh, people who put their trust in evolution, it is totally antithetical to the laws of physics and the laws that we, we say govern the universe. Uh, the thesis of... of uh, Things are changing for the better and getting stronger and more sophisticated. There is, there is nothing in history or in science that will validate such a thesis. And if somebody says, you're people of faith, but I'm a man of science and I believe in evolution, you are a fool. You have, I don't have the faith to believe what you believe. It's unobservable. It can't be proven. And uh, we have uh, a lot of things that flow out of this idea of uh, the law of thermodynamics and entropy. Uh, we see in uh, our current state of affairs in our nation and in the world, uh, I hear pundits telling us that people are gripped with fear, uncertainty, unsure of what's going on. Uh, recently, uh, I had an experience that I had never had before, and that was to go to a high school reunion. <laughs> we were asked to bring our slates. <laughs> but after 55 years... I went back to meet with my graduating class, which was diminished by about 130 people who had already died. I don't know why they die so young, but... Uh... <laughs> so it caused me to go back and open up my yearbook. And I opened up the yearbook and a flood of memories came. Uh, you can imagine, I had a good time in high school and I enjoyed myself. Uh, but what I noticed was a totally different ethos. The way they dressed, I remember how they communicate, I remembered uh, the, that there was no crudeness of language, maybe in the, in the locker room, but the reality was that there, there was a totally different cultural ethos going on in 1955. And uh, it leads me to think about this, that we are seeing a disintegration of a culture. And uh, it, has it has happened gradually in some ways, and yet it is speeding up until a person dropped in from 1955 would not recognize the culture or anything, anything about the way we live. Now, I'm not sanctifying that, but I'll tell you this. There, at that time in our history, there was a consensus, a Judeo-Christian ethic consensus. Everybody had a sense of what was right and wrong. 
They didn't always do what was right, but they still had the capacity for shame. I've read uh, some books. Anybody heard of Robert Bork? He wrote this book called Slouching Towards Gomorrah. Now, this was a man that was put up for the Supreme Court, and the phrase that is used now is that he was borked. And when people get done unfairly, they say, you were borked. So he wasn't elected to the Supreme Court, but he wrote this book, which in my opinion is probably the best book I've ever read on the disintegration of our culture. Let me give you some chapter headings. Uh, the collapse of popular culture, the case for censorship, the rise of crime, illegitimacy, and welfare, killing for convenience, abortion, assisted suicide, and euthanasia, uh, the politics of sex, radical feminism's assault on American culture, uh, the dilemma of race, dilemma of intellect, the trouble in religion, a wistful hope for fraternity or community. Now, that's just some of the uh, things that were there. Another book I got a hold of, and it's not written by a Christian. How many of you have heard of the book, Why, Why Johnny Can't Read? Have you heard it? Okay, well, this says Why Johnny Can't Tell Right from Wrong. And it, it is not written by a Christian. It is written about social philosophy of education. And the, the principles that go into the education that are held almost universally through the NAE are, are uh, issues that are not interested in teaching facts. They're interested in teaching experiences. And our young people are coming out of school with a, without a sense of right or wrong, ethics, morality. Uh, I could go on and on about that, but it's... Uh, we are in the midst of a huge revolution. And it's like the frog in the kettle. As the heat is turned up, the frog so gradually changes temperature, doesn't realize his peril and it's frog legs for dinner. So I have another book by Dr. Javid, Dar Javid Daramiah. <laughs> anyway, it's not my book. It belongs to Linton. And if he ever finds out I have it, I'll have to give it back. <laughs> anyway, you, uh, you're not going to tell him, are you? Oh, you are. Okay. <laughs> what are you going to do when a wife's here? Anyway, he writes this book entitled, I Never Thought I'd See the Day. I don't know if any of you have seen it or read it. Anybody? Anyway, this is a Christian pastor. Dr. David Jeremiah. And he wrote this book, I Never Thought I'd See the Day. And the introduction is a slow drift in the wrong direction. And then chapter one is when atheists would be angry. You know, this hidden group of knotheads <laughs> have suddenly become a political movement. Uh, when Christians wouldn't know they were in a war. When Jesus would be so profane. When marriage would be obsolete. When morality would be in free fall. When the Bible would be marginalized. When the church would be irrelevant. When a Muslim state could intimidate the world. When America would turn her back on Israel. When changing your mind could save your life. Uh, this is... The, the titles of the chapters uh, are worth the price of the book. And what he has to say is, for the most part, I, I thought was, was very good. Now, I'm not selling these books. Uh, I, I might rent them to you. <laughs> but uh, if you want some insight into the war that is going on against Christ, his church, and its expression in community. And uh, I'm going to pretty much uh, leave it at that. So the issue of uh, community, I want to put it in these terms. You've heard of the Big Bang. 
uh, I want you to know that there were two big bangs. If the first one happened at all. But the second one happened, in, and you can read of it in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. If uh, this is new to you, it's at the front of the book. Okay, Genesis 3, 1 to 7. By the way, uh, if you don't have your Bibles with you, I want to congratulate you for memorizing it. Verse, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say we must not eat uh, fruit from the tree of life that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it. Or you will die. So she was clear on what God actually said. Satan says, you will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. <coughs> when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, uh, there's some interesting observations we can make about the last part here, about all of a sudden being aware that they were naked and needing to cover up. Uh, but what it does indicate that in this act of rebellion or independence from God, in other words, God's putting one over on you here. He's holding out on you. You can have, I mean, there is more here than you could possibly imagine. And you could be your own God. I mean, that's, that's pretty good advertising. And of course, they ate and things changed. And what changed was the purity of heart as they looked upon one another. There was nothing in their spirits at that point to see another person as an object to be used. Suddenly, they were aware, they were aware that they were different and, and uh, this... Uh, urge of sexuality, I guess, uh, became bigger than it needed to be. And uh, so they began to cover up. And I, uh, in looking at this, uh, I see something more dynamic and tragic than the Big Bang. I'll call this the other big bang. Because it was at this moment that the father of all of us made a choice that has affected all of us. And that choice was sin. Not sins. It was sin. Now, sin is not the things we do. Sin is the heart orientation toward independence from God. And out of sin come all of the sins. If you could deal with that issue, if you could come uh, away from and, and receive the, the, the remedy that God has given that causes us to be inclined toward independence. Uh, I'm gonna, this is a little aside, but uh, I think democracy is a great thing for Christians. Democracy is a problem for people who are still in that orientation of their own God. And we are, we are going through a time from 19, well, it's before, but really the erosion began after the Second World War, and it has increased and increased and increased until we come to a time when we could not be called a Christian nation. Our official, uh, our official religion 
is secularism. And secularism says there is no God. And we have schooled our children, uh, their children and their children's children uh, in this. And even though they don't know they believe it, it has, it has placed upon them a worldview, an outlook that, that causes them to be blind to the dangers of the things that, that are coming at them in, in a, a quantity we couldn't have imagined in 1956. You know, between the television, I remember getting a television set. My pa- parents didn't want one, but I, I got this little plastic Philco thing and uh, put it in my room, and then I had to take it out because I couldn't get my parents out. <laughs> but that was really corrupting stuff. You know, howdy doody. <laughs> if there was, if there was a, uh, a couple, and if they were ever shown in their bedroom, it was always in twin beds. Uh, I, what I'm saying is that People's perception of what was appropriate, what was right, was vastly different than it is now. Now we have television that you're hard-pressed not to stumble across pornography. Or maybe not stumble. Maybe go looking for it. And we have been dumbed down. We have been numbed to the things that have the power to destroy us. And without knowing it, we're, we find ourselves swimming in the same water that uh, the world swims in with all of the implications that are a part of that. And a major issue with the church is that it has been unchristianized by the popular media. And we find ourselves approving, doing, thinking in ways that Christians who are who were living at the time when there was a Judeo-Christian nationwide set of assumptions, uh, would not have tolerated for a minute. When I was young, my dad was a pastor. I can't remember a thing he said, uh, but I do remember him. He was probably the most godly man I ever knew. And, uh, I mean, having him as my father and my mother as my mother... Uh, a lot of things uh, were set in place that God has developed over many years. Uh, But to say uh, that this environment in which we live is not affecting us, it would be a good thing if you could find it on your your computer uh, to look up George Barna. George Barna is a Christian uh, who, who does interviews and, and writes the statistics. And in his statistics, this is one I remember from the pastors that were sur- surveyed, and there were thousands of them. Fully 50% of them did not have a Christian worldview. Some of them pastoring enormous churches and influencing many others. And uh, they're scratching some itches, it must be, because people keep going. But the truth is, when you ask them what they believe, let's say concerning the virgin birth, or concerning other things that uh, uh, a a Bible-believing Christian would take at face value, you find that they have even uh, dumbed down the scriptures until it's not to be trusted over our own thinking and ideas. I mean, that's, that's just one thing. But uh, the numbers are frightening, and I, I, I really can't take the time to uh, spend any more time on that. The breaking of community uh, is a monumentally corrupting thing. Uh, And it isn't new. This was going on in in, uh, Paul's time. As a, for instance, the Corinthian church uh, had a lot of issues about breaking fellowship. Uh, He says there are quarrels and divisions among you. He didn't didn't give us specifics. Uh, There was divisiveness 
that can look quite spiritual. Uh, after all, being pre- having precision in your doctrine can't be all bad. And the question that is asked, have you ever been in an atmosphere of disunity? Have you ever been in, a, in an atmosphere uh, where uh, people were looking to find something that didn't fit their current ideas and break fellowship? Churches, denominations grow up on the slightest provocation. And uh, anyway, I want to get back to my, my primary thesis. And that is uh, primarily this. That in a exploding universe, in a uh, divided Christian community, we are seeing the only prescribed remedy uh, being taken lightly. Uh, People leave a church for almost any reason. You know, it's a whim. Or my friend's over there, or this, or that. Or they leave their small group almost for any reason. And to put this in a cosmic sense, in the midst of the big bangs, there is only one prescribed remedy that God has given to begin to bring integration rather than explosion. And that remedy is the church of Jesus Christ. I guess what I want to do is help us look at this community thing and not be passive about it. Christians' relationships together under the power of the Holy Spirit is that sweet aroma. It's the smell of God. People walk into it and they know there's something different here and I like it. People live next door to a Christian. It reminds me of a story I heard about a young man uh, who, who had just gotten saved. And uh, he was asked to go off with his company, which was a logging company, to a remote place uh, up in Alaska. And they prayed for him because he's a brand new, brand new Christian. And uh, in there with probably a lot of pretty profane guys. And uh, so they prayed for him every day. And uh, when he finally came back, the pastor asked him in the congregation, he said, how did it go? Uh, Did they make fun of you for being a Christian? To which he said, they never found out. How many of us live our Christian lives in isolation? we're not free to give that word that, that is a positive word or sometimes a corrective word. Because people will think you're a crazy right-wing evangelical. Now, I could think of swear words that are, that are not that strong in the minds of many. But the reality is, dear friends, in an exploding world, with craziness going on in our schools, craziness going on in our marriages, craziness going on in the economy, politicians that cannot help themselves from lying. I mean, it just comes. And I'm not here to bash anyone. There's enough to go around. But in the midst of all of this, the only integrating force in the world is the church of Jesus Christ. Apart from that, we can only expect disintegration, decay, and death. And I would say, and I'm not making judgment on anybody here or even this church, but there are churches and Christians that are more part of the problem than part of the solution. And I believe it is God's deep desire to get a hold of the hearts of sincere believers and 
move them into relationships of accountability and trust and honesty and integrity built around the truth of the Scripture and the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit ministering Christ into our lives. So I've gone to the last point. Uh, and that point is how do we do this? You know, every time I, I, I give you some ought to's, or anybody does, they're appealing to your hard wiring toward performance. We ought to do this. You need to do more of that. You need to do this. And uh, we get real calloused with a pattern of shucking it all the time and not taking that as a serious issue. And I believe, dear friends, in a time of great crisis, we're in a time of potential revival. Sometimes it's not till we get squeezed or we're put in a position where uh, we have to stand alone or we don't stand at all that we begin to look seriously at our relationship with God. Because on your own, I want to tell you something. On your own, you cannot fulfill all the ought to's I could dump on you. It is impossible. And I know people who leave church don't even know it, but they're depressed. And I want to tell you about grace. Grace is God's empowering presence. Enabling me to be who He made me to be and to do what He calls me to do. It is no longer I that live. It is Christ that lives in me. And we need to get there some soon. Uh, you say, how does this work? Uh, how does this keep me from being sinning? You know, doing the same stuff over and over. And I would say to you, there is one thing. You remember the movie? Movie, forget what it's about. But anyway, <laughs> the cowboy says uh, says to his young ranch hand that's working for him, says, "The secret of life." And, and the old guy says, "I can't give it to you. It's just one thing." City slickers. See, I don't watch that stuff. <laughs> Anyway, it's one thing, and that one thing is coming to agreement with God about my Adam nature. My Adam nature is incorrigible. There are many Christians who come to Christ who don't know that, and they spend their lives trying to perfect Adam. I want to tell you the best news you'll ever hear in your life, and that is that when Jesus died, Floyd Evers' Adam was in Christ. When you were baptized, you made a statement in your baptism. I agree with God that this old nature of mine has only one remedy, and that's death. And right now, publicly, I'm confessing that I needed to die in order that I could live. The problem in our life is that we, we have lists that either, if we keep enough of them, we feel better. And if, we, if we're not keeping up and the preacher keeps giving us more, then we feel bad. See, the, the secret to the Christian life is not living for Jesus. It's living from Him. It is His life in you. And the best prayer I could pray in the morning is, God, I agree with you about my old nature. I will not believe the lies that the enemy would bring to me that he brought to Adam. I will not believe them. I agree and I stand in that position. I will not be moved. And I agree, Father, that you didn't just save me from my sin, but you saved me from my sinfulness. My inclinations toward independence. My inclination... To be the center of the picture, my, in, my inclination to not ever let myself be in a position where I am scorned or pushed aside. Dear friends, when we live from Christ and we scatter to the corners of Big Bear Valley, the aroma, the aroma, somebody estimated there's probably 2,100 born-again believers on this mountain.
Can you imagine what the impact would be on every facet of life in the valley if there was the aroma from all 2100? If there was the witness of life that came from the water that was the life of Jesus? I, I, I don't want to beat you up this morning. I, I want to give you hope. And religion is not the answer. The life of Jesus in you, working by the Holy Spirit, is the answer. It's the easiest thing, and it's the hardest thing to do. Let me tell you how it works. 24-7. Uh, Paul, Paul wrote a, a piece where he said, I die daily. Uh, I know he faced physical death, but his dying daily was coming back to the foundation truth that at the cross, my Adam nature got its just due. And I'm, I'm determined to stand in that position. By the way, this is the secret to true humility. Simply agreeing with God. And I'm determined to stand in that position where it is no longer I that live, but it's Christ living in me. I've had... Did we, we, we finish here at one? Uh, I took a job uh, up at Bear Mountain, driving a shuttle. And I've done that for the last four years. Uh, there are a lot of things that happen that are really irritating. Some of them make you mad. And uh, I developed a habit while I was driving up there. Probably I, was, I would pray. And I would say, God, I thank you that you, are, you have put me in a covenant relationship with you. You are my source. You've taken everything I have to give and dealt with it. And you're now giving me everything you have to give. And I yield the members of my body to you as instruments of righteousness. I will not be a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. And I invite you, God, to think with my mind. Feel uh, that I feel with your mind. I think with your mind. Feel with your emotions. And speak from your heart. And I would find myself sometimes in a conflict where I found negative thoughts coming up of, towards someone or someone else, the Holy Spirit immediately pulled my chain. He says, this is not me. And my response was, God, forgive me for going back to the old source for that moment. See, it's not a revival meeting and one trip to the altar every year. It's second by second by second. And when the Spirit taps us on the shoulder and says, this is, not a, this is not me, that's your old life, I don't, get, I don't repent for being angry. What I repent of is drawing my life from the wrong source. And that source has every right to be angry. That, that source is full of arrogance and pride and uh, my way or the highway. Uh, I just want you to know that it works. And that the life of Christ in you by the Holy Spirit can emit that aroma, especially as the checks and balances of honest relationships are maintained. You should never make a major decision without counsel. None of us should. And that counsel should be coming from people with godly perspectives. Because it's not the wisdom of the world. So, church, God has established us as his agents. And not just given us as an assignment, he has given us himself. And then he has surrounded us with other people that are in the same mix. And we can talk about those times when we started drawing our life from the wrong source, from old Adam. And we were defensive. It did this, it did that. Got angry, being cut off. I mean, this goes on second by second by second. And it helps if you give God permission. God, keep me on a short leash.
if I get sucking from this other pipe, I, I, just let me know. And he, he tapped me on the shoulder. He said, hey, you know. <laughs> and repentance can come in an instant. And it's not repentance of the sin you committed. It's repentance of the source you chose to live from when you committed that sin. Dear friends, I, I am, uh, I've been retired for about seven years. And God has been merciful uh, to pin me to the wall and make me listen to some things I didn't know or hadn't practiced and so on. And I, I desire for you the joy from this day forward of living from Christ. Living for Him. You don't have power to do that. You're not pleasing Him. Uh, this isn't something He wants you to do. He wants you to live from Him. And then the aroma, the aroma of Christ will go where you go. Let's pray. Father God, I stand amazed at your grace. I stand amazed, God, that you would enter into a blood covenant with me that you would never break. I thank you, God, that you took all of my, what I had to give and you have given to me and to us all that you are. And we truly, God, can now do all things through you who strengthens us. God, let your kingdom come and your will be done in us, in this church. Let the aroma, the sweet aroma of the life of God uh, emit from our marriages, from our families, from our work, from our response to hardship and shortness of money and all the other things we go through. God, just squeezes at those times and let the aroma come out. So, Father, uh, we just come to you because you, you have it all and uh, we have nothing. And it's your life in us, God, that is our hope. I pray your blessing, God, on, on each of the people here this morning. Give them, give them the joy in community with you and with your people, even when they're not nice. We just receive, God, your grace for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I just, I, I'm going to pass that along to Jesus, okay?